This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to challenging you to read the Bible for yourself and to help you discover what it means to have an intimate, present relationship with Jesus Christ. When you turn to Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Sounds like he's claiming to be a lot more than a prophet. Let's join Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter study leader, as he introduces our study of the conclusion of the last book of the New Testament with a discussion about Jesus' claim to be equal to the God of the Old Testament who spoke to Moses. Dave? It's very, very important in the book of Revelation. John always is committed to the grace of Jesus, and it's always the grace of Jesus alone, the new life of Jesus alone, that generates new life, and it's never done apart from him, and we're never separated from him. But I want you to know that that grace of Jesus does make real, objective, powerful changes in life. And if it doesn't, we need to go back and talk about what about this vertical relationship with the Lord Jesus. So Jesus promises that his reward is with him. You say, well, Dave, again, how can I be sure he didn't come through for me? Because Jesus claims, look at the titles that Jesus claims. He claims titles that are used of God himself. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. How many of you have ever had a Jehovah's Witness tell you that Jesus is not equal to Jehovah in the Old Testament. Anybody ever had someone tell you that? Well, here's some great verses for you. Because those titles, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, are titles that are used of Yahweh in the Old Testament. In fact, let me give you a verse. You might want to jot it down. Isaiah 44.6. Isaiah 44.6. This is what the Lord says. This is what Yahweh, Jehovah, says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Yahweh, the Jehovah Almighty, I am the first and the last. Ever hear that phrase before? That's what John calls Jesus. Jesus claims, I am the first. Like John is just the mouthpiece. Jesus himself says, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, Isaiah says, there is no God. If you want a really powerful way to prove that Jesus is divine, and this is a very important idea in our culture because our culture wants to put Jesus alongside a bunch of other religionists. The American society, the world that you live in, doesn't understand who Jesus is. The American society believes that you can put Moses and Jesus and Muhammad and Confucius and Buddha, you just line them all up. They're just great religious philosophers. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know, if Jesus is not fully divine, then chuck your Bible out the window. Because almost every page of your New Testament presents a divine Jesus Christ, a fully God Jesus Christ. And this book that we, that we are devoted to, that we love, is worthless if Jesus isn't truly the first and the last. The idea of him being the Alpha and the Omega means that Jesus is the author of all communication, the A to Z of reality. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Jesus was all the character of God. Everything that God the Father was in his internal being, God the Son was. Distinct from God the Father, that's why it doesn't say that he was the God. It would be wrong to say that because that would eliminate the distinction between the Father and the Son, which is a very clear biblical idea. There is one God, but there are three persons. But the Bible could not be clear that Jesus is the A to Z of divinity. He's the one that's the author of all language, all communication. He is the Alpha and the Omega. What it, does it mean that he's the first and the last? It means that he was here in the beginning. He was here before creation. And he's going to be here in the end. Brothers and sisters, you want to be devoted to the person that was here in the beginning and created everything. That's why you know that in the end... When the present world that he created, because he is the Alpha and the Omega by his word, when he creates another universe that's distinct from this, a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be created the same way by the power of his living word, you want your existence to be rooted in his word. Do you understand that? Really important. Jesus is not like Buddha. Buddha was just a man with insights that he thought would somehow get into the great forces of life. And our society is just laying paganism and different brands of Christianity side by side. And a lot of people say in the name of toleration, man, everything, that's fine. We all need to love each other and everything else. Brothers and sisters, the book of Revelation is strongly declaring this is reality. One day when you die or one day when Jesus comes back, you're not going to be face to face with Muhammad. You're not going to be face-to-face with Buddha. You're going to be face-to-face with a God-man who has wounds in his side. And if you don't hear spiritual teachers teaching you like that, they are false teachers. They are deceiving you. The book of Revelation could not be stronger on the divinity of Christ. Why? Because the people that were hearing John talk were losing their lives for what they believed. They were losing their lives because they wouldn't bow before Caesar because they remain fully devoted to this Jesus Christ. And that's why John wrote them like he did, because they needed to be told, it's going to be worth it that you've given up everything for him, because he's divine. He's the first and the last. He can deliver his promise of reward. He's going to come back, and it will be worthwhile that you believed in him. Jesus gives a blessing in the very next verse. Look what he says. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may go through the gates into the holy city. I love the way John balances. I just talked to you about the need for works in our life that follow faith. But John doesn't want us to get the wrong picture. He comes back right away. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. This is the seventh beatitude, the seventh blessing of the Lord in the book of Revelation. Let me just review some of the past Beatitudes, some of the past blessings. John loves seven. It's the number of completion. And he has seven beatitudes. He starts out in one three. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. That's you. We're reaching the end of this book. We have read this book. We've taken it to heart. And I want you to know that the living Christ is saying, blessed are you who read it and put it into practice. You'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled. Your ultimate destiny will be exactly what the Lord wants it to be in Christ. In chapter 14, verse 13, it says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, 
Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow. In chapter 14, there was intense persecution against those who followed the Lamb during the tribulation period. And the angelic announcement comes from heaven. Blessed are those who are martyred for the sake of Christ. And you can see that absolute commitment of these first century believers and the tribulation saints that are going to come at the end of time. Chapter 16, verse 15, we have the next beatitude. Behold, I come like a thief, Jesus says. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with, clothes with him, so he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. It's another way of saying blessed is the individual that really takes commitment to Christ seriously and doesn't wake up when Christ comes back unprepared. Chapter 19, verse 9, Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These words are true words of God. Chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death will not have any power over them, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then 22, 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then we have this beatitude. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. What's the blessing that Jesus has promised? In the book of Revelation, Genesis 3, we're locked out of the tree of life. We're locked out of eternal life. That's why we all die. And none of us can, can attack paradise. We can't find the Garden of Eden even. We can't find the fountain of eternality. We can't find this garden that God originally created. And there's an angel, there's supernatural beings that guard the entrance to that garden. But every one of you needs to get in to paradise. Every one of you know that the world that you live in is just not the way that a good, holy God would create the world. You live in a world, if you'll look carefully at it, it has little glimmerings of what it ought to be. When you look at a little baby and you hold the baby in your arms and you see the wonder of their little hands, you realize there's an ultimate good. There's an incredible, beautiful God. And then you read about the horror of evil and you see this great contrast. Every one of you understand in your heart that there's a yearning to be able to go to a garden. When you're in a beautiful Japanese garden and you see the beauty and the order and the flowering plants and the incredible wonder of a garden, there's something deep inside of you that goes, man, I'd like to live here. I'd like my own backyard to look like this so I can enjoy this. What's happening? The Spirit of God is saying, you were built for that. You were built for beauty. You were built for wonder. You were built for art. And yet there's an evil principle that keeps invading this planet and producing ugly things in the midst of this beauty. And God has not left us without his witness in nature. And he wants us to see his witness in nature. And he wants us to drive us. Boy, I want to go into that garden. And what tremendous news I have to say to you, you can enter. If you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb, what a beautiful symbol. You see, to get into this garden, you have to have the right clothes. You've got to be dressed right. Some of you teenagers, your mom and dad are telling you, you're going to go to a wedding, you need to get dressed right. And some of you teenagers, oh, goodness gracious. I mean, I have to put on a monkey suit and get ready. And How many of you have ever had mom say, no, you've got to dress right for this? Well, that's following on what's happening here. It's saying you've got to dress right for paradise. You've got to dress right for the kingdom of heaven. 
But what an incredible good news. You say, Dave, how do I dress right? You got to wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? It's saying that when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, his blood, his sacrificial death, became a bleaching agent that can take out the ugliest spot that any human being can ever put upon their life. Oh, I want you to hear that today. When I talk to you about the idea of reward and I talk to you about the idea that there needs to be ethics, some of you are are just filled with guilt. You look back over your life and you think about some of the bad things you've done and some of the immoral things you've done. You think of some, some surveys and some, some admission forms that you filled out where instead of telling the truth, you lied. You say, man, it, boy, the truth of my life is, is I've done some really ugly things. Jesus says, I can wash your robe completely clean. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from every sin. That's the incredible news of the being an insider with Jesus. Any man or woman, the thief on the cross was a murderer, was an insurrectionist, was a revolutionist. The thief on the cross said to his buddy that was cursing Jesus, he said, stop cursing him. Don't you know who this is? This man has done nothing wrong, and you can see truth. You can see honesty come over this thief on the cross. And he looks at Jesus, hanging just before he died. He says, well, you remember me when you come into the garden. Paradise, that's what paradise means. It's the garden. It's God's eternal place of goodness and truth and beauty. Will you remember me when you enter the garden? And that thief was saying, I know who you are. Because who has access to the garden? Who can take you to the tree of life that makes you live forever? It's got to be God. The thief on the cross was confessing in just very short words. I know you're an innocent man. I know you're the son of God. I know you're the one that can take me to heaven. And what did Jesus say to him? Boy, you haven't been religious enough. You need to turn over a new leaf. Man, when you got your hands nailed to a cross, there's no good works you can do with your hands. When you got your feet nailed to a cross, there's no good works that you can go out and do. All you can do when you got your hands nailed to the cross and your feet nailed to the cross, all you can do is cling to the one that's hanging in the middle. And that's what the thief on the cross did. And you know what? One day, one day, you're going to be hugging that thief as your brother in Christ. Amen? Isn't that incredible? And I want every single one of you, when Satan lies to you and says you're never going to be worthy and you can't be sure you're going to walk in that garden, you can't be sure you're going to eat of the tree of life, I want you to go back to what Jesus did for you on the cross and I want you to tell Satan, Satan, I have washed my life in the blood of the Lamb and I've become white as snow. I've become a new creation in him. That's what John means by I've washed my robes in the blood of the Lamb. But you know, that's the insider. The insider is the one that one day can say, man, he's coming, he's coming soon, and his reward's going to be with him, and it's going to be worth it that I followed him. And they can rejoice that they've been watching the blood of the Lamb. But it talks about those who are outside in this text as well. Look what it says. It says, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, those who are sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You know, John has three passages in this book where he talks about 
Those are going to be outsiders. And I want you to, this list is really important. If you want to know, like, who are those that are not going to make it into heaven, here's the list. He starts out in 21.8. He says the cowardly. What does he mean by that? A coward is not just someone like a soldier that, that gets the shivers in battle. What he is talking about throughout this whole book, John is challenging his brothers and sisters. You live in a Roman world. You live with a Roman emperor. And you need to declare your total allegiance to Jesus. You're part of trade guilds. And in those trade guilds, they offer sacrifices and they pray to idols. And you got to decide. You cannot be in the trade guild and offer prayers to an idol. You can be in the trade guild. But when it comes time to make the dedication to the gods, you need to say no. When Caesar comes through with his legates and you have big plays and big dramas and you go to these big amphitheaters like they had in Ephesus and the Roman representative of the Caesar tells everyone to stand and then bow to the great Caesar in Rome as a believer John is saying you got to stand tall you say well Dave believers didn't do that oh yes they did that's how they conquered the Roman Empire we've got letters from a little bit after the close of the first century, from Pliny, one of the Roman governors, and he's running to the emperor Trajan, saying, what do I do with these common men and women, just common boys and girls, common teenagers, common workers? They will not bow to Caesar. They're great citizens. They are great, obedient to the law. They're productive. They work hard. But when I come through with our annual need for them to declare the absolute lordship of Caesar, they will not do it. And that was the great conflict for three centuries after Christianity was founded. Brothers and sisters, it's still a conflict today. You're going to be put in situations where you're going to decide, where do I bow? Where do I put myself down? Like, if you're on the Dallas City Council, what do you do as a believer? If they go ahead and have a Wicca witch come in and give the blessing, you stand and walk out. And you communicate that I know we live in a free country, and I know that there needs to be the freedom of expression, but I want you to know that I am fully committed to the absolute lordship of Jesus, and that represents what is the opposite of all that my Savior is, and it does a deep injustice to my personal rights and my spiritual commitments for this to be done, and I will have no part with it. You don't get your fist, you don't come back with power, but you stand for truth. That's what it means not to be a coward. It means that deep inside you remain consistent with your convictions. Second of all, it says the unbelieving, those that have not responded to the Savior, they've not believed in him. The vile, the word vile means impurity, dirtiness. It's the dirty jokes. Brothers and sisters, you all know what is vile. Go into a football locker room. When I was in junior high school, playing junior high school football, I knew exactly what was vile. Man, the jokes... In the locker room, the things that were said, when you get at a party, suddenly the conversation turns vile. Listen, brothers and sisters, some of you guys, you'll suddenly begin to tell a joke, and you're thinking in your heart, you know, this is a little bit off, what's the word that we use? A little bit off color. That's what this word means. It's dirty. We even use it. How many of you ever heard the phrase, dirty joke? You know what's vile. Every one of you know what's vile deep in your soul. 
And brothers and sisters, I want to know something. If you're going to follow Jesus, then you can't sit here piously Sunday morning and then go out during the week and tell vile, dirty things. It's not going to fly. You can't teach Sunday school classes and, and raise little children about the beauty and the purity and the cleanness of Jesus. And then when they get to be adults and they see you in the marketplace, you're a dirty person. That, brothers and sisters, is not going to fly. It's serious business for me and for you. And as a church family, we need to guard ourselves against that which is impure, against that which is vile, murderous. What's the idea of murderers? Abortion, and the, the, the infanticide against children, like Romans didn't like baby girls, so they just leave them out in the street. Abortion's not a new thing, and infanticide's not a new thing. That's murder. You can't do that. The scripture would say, like, if you're, if you're a judge or you're involved in a legal system and you take bribes and you let the innocent be judged and you let those that are guilty not face punishment, then you're entering and you're breaking that commandment. You're murdering. And believers need to understand, we just can't have a part of that. We need to value human life. It needs to be precious to us. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. In our society, like, we're pretty clear on murdering, except in the area, which is a gigantic area, of abortion and the killing of, of the old people. Euthanasia and abortion are very prominent ways that murders just take place freely in our society. But in the area of sexual standards... Our society has decided that the seventh commandment doesn't apply to us. And I want you to see, brothers and sisters, Revelation saying, if you're committed in your heart to sexual immorality, you don't think adultery is any big deal? You say, well, I'm not married to anybody. I'm just a single person. It doesn't hurt anybody. Oh, yes, it does. Every single person that you have sexual relationships with, you become one with them. You are joined with them. I could ask any person that's been divorced, any one of you that's been divorced, if I were to ask you, are you still connected with the person you used to be married to? And every one of you or honest would say, oh, yes, I am. You'll never, never be disconnected. You'll always be dealing with them. You're always having to relate to them. Even if you don't have children, that's true. Why did God give such strong rules about sexual immorality? Because it destroys people. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that this involves, the word that's used for sexual immorality here covers fornication, which is sex with somebody before you're married. It's teenagers monkeying around and adults monkeying around when they're not married. The word covers that. The word covers the treachery of adultery. The word also covers homosexuality. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that homosexuality from a biblical standpoint is just the same kind of a ballpark as fornication and adultery. And you live in a society that's saying that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. And a very clever thing is being done. If you're black, you've all faced injustice and you've faced the wrong of a society that didn't understand you. If you're homosexual, our society says you experience the same thing. The only difference is that I've never read anywhere in the Bible where anything that God says said that it's an evil thing to be black or yellow or brown or whatever color you want to be. I've never read anything in the Bible that says it's wrong be, to marry someone of a different race. There's just nothing in the Bible that talks about anything with race being sinful at all. Do you understand that? It is a clever argument to say that race and homosexuality is exactly the same thing. It is not. 
Because who decides what is wrong? And I want you to hear this. I didn't decide that immorality, having sex outside of marriage, that adultery is an evil thing. I did not decide that. God did. He did it for some really strong reasons. And our society is telling you that in the name of love, I've heard it said over and over again this week, how could anything that is so loving be evil? Because if you do something in your personal behavior that contradicts the righteous standard of God, you did not do a loving act. You did an evil act. And in the end, it will not produce life. It produces death. Very important. Degenerous and Hanky. They had a long relationship, didn't they? Blasted all over the land. This works. Here's a beautiful, loving relationship. How long did it last? God loves you too much, ladies. God loves you too much, ladies, to want you to get in a relationship that can blow apart, that can't produce children, unless by some very, very creative biological means. God loves you too much for that. Sure, it's a temptation to some of you. And I want you to know in our church family, we need to create an environment where young people that are growing to maturity that wrestle with real serious temptations are not destroyed and are not hurt. They are loved into wholeness. It's important to remember that. And brothers and sisters, I speak from real personal experience. My brother-in-law decided that the loving thing for him to do was to leave my sister, leave his little kids, and go with his homosexual lover. And he lived in this society of gayness. He lived in that lifestyle. He experienced all the wonders and the art and the music and the beauty of what homosexuality could offer. But brothers and sisters, he lay dying of AIDS. And he wouldn't even tell his gay lover to call his own kids. Why? Because when you abandon the things of God, when you choose your own definition of love, your priorities are turned upside down. His son loved him. His daughter loved him. My sister loved him. She never even remarried. She remained devoted to him. And they ran to his side as soon as they found out that he was sick. You talk about forgiveness, brothers and sisters. That's forgiveness. And they arrived too late. He was gone into eternity. And they got up at his funeral. And they expressed how much they loved their husband, how much they loved their dad, and they talked about the good things about his life. And they also expressed, you know and we know that we don't accept your lifestyle. We believe it's a sin because God said it's a sin, but we want you to know we love you as individuals. And we long for you to come to the only Savior that can set any of us free from our sin. Brothers and sisters, don't say it's unloving to say that homosexuality is evil. If you don't believe it, look at the reality. Look at the real objective reality of what that kind of a lifestyle ultimately produces. Say, Dave, what are you talking about? We live in a society that says gravity doesn't apply to me. I've used this in illustration, but you've got to think clearly because our young people are told again and again in school there's nothing wrong with this. Brothers and sisters, you can go to a school where they tell you gravity does not apply. It's a new progressive idea we have. We want to be loving. We want to be open. Gravity just doesn't apply. And you can form anti-gravity clubs. 
You can come out in the open. I don't believe in gravity anymore. And you can have a great production where you climb up the water tower in Midlothian and you say, we're going to celebrate the freedom and deliverance from this old-fashioned law of physics called gravity. And so you all jump off the water tower. You can do that. But I want you to understand something. Your beliefs about what is true and what isn't will have nothing to do with what happens once you jump. You don't decide the law of gravity. God does. God decides when it applies, when it doesn't. God's the author of those standards. The, same, the book of Proverbs is saying the same reality is true in ethical, moral, sexual standards. They are built into creation. They're built into nature. They're the expressions of his love. And you can live in a society that believes anything they want to about sexual immorality, whether it's heterosexual immorality or homosexual immorality. And I want you to know something. You might feel, some of you get really upset and feel like, man, it looks like God's going to lose, and man, this doesn't work, and God must be wrong, and look at, boy, it looks like the righteous people that get creamed and the wicked people. I got news for you. God never loses. God never loses. Don't be intimidated. Don't feel like you're on the losing side. God always wins. It's going to always pay off in the long run that you made a commitment to live for him. What I'm saying does not fit in our culture at all, but I'm your pastor, and one day I'm going to stand up before the living God, and he's going to say, why are these people in hell? Why didn't they have a burden for the lost? And I'm going to tell him, because we didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. We wanted to be tolerant. We wanted to be open. Look at this list, brothers and sisters. These people end up in hell. These are the people that are in the lake of fire. Those that are unbelieving. Those that are sexually immoral. Those that are idolatrous. Those that love the lie. They end up in hell. What does it mean to love the lie? Right now as I look at this audience, you love the truth. And I want you to know that as I talk to you, I know that most of you, and so many of our young people, and so many of you young adults, and so many of the kids, there's such a tremendous desire in this church. I want to know the truth. And you're sitting here going, man, I want to know what this book says. And you're sitting there going, man, teach me more from this book. You love the truth. I want you to guard that. There's people that used to sit here, and they love this truth. They've now walked away. And you know what? When I talk to them now, we're on a different page. They don't want to hear the counsel of God's word. They don't want to hear the instruction. And they'll look at me with a straight face, with a big smile, and say, Dave, I've found the way. I'm happy. I'm completed. And Marion will say, hey, but wait a minute. It says right here. It's in black and white. They'll go, I know. That, that's good for you. Works for you. But I'm following this way. And I've never felt more completed, more fulfilled. Brother and sister, you know what that is? It's believing the lie. It's believing the lie. You know, brother and sisters, like close today, you know, truth is a very delicate thing. Truth is a very delicate thing. You all think, oh, I know what the truth is. No, you don't. It's hard to find out the truth of situations. In order really to know the truth, you have to have a humble heart. You have to admit, I don't really know the truth. So wisdom, teach me the truth. Heavenly Daddy, I can't know the truth without you. Pour your life into me. Pour your mind into me. Pour your heart into me. And then God will do it. But if you say, I'm going to live my own truth. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go out and follow my own way. Then the Bible says, 
that you'll live the lie. You'll live the lie. And the brothers and sisters, you can live that lie so long that you end up separated from God, an outsider. And brothers and sisters, John did not close the book of Revelation stressing idolatry, stressing sexual immorality, stressing deception, stressing vileness, stressing cowardliness and not being fully committed to Jesus. He didn't stress those things for nothing. He was saying, you come to Christ, he creates a new person inside of you where you develop a disdain for the evil side and you create a tremendous passion for the heavenly side. And as we go out this week, I want us to be able to think clearly about the insiders and the outsiders. The insiders are those that have believed in Jesus and have their lives transformed by him. The outsiders are deceived right now. And there's going to come a day where there's an ultimate division where God separates the sheep from the goats, the insiders from the outsiders. But right now he's saying, for God to love the world, that if anyone will believe in him, they'll become an insider. There is something worse than being left out in the cold. It's one day being eternally left out in the heat, locked out of the paradise of God. And Revelation's telling us that there's no reason for any of our friends to be locked out. So this week as we go out, let's boldly proclaim to our friends that Jesus is the King.